Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Podcast. I'm James Price. I'm your host for today. I connect businesses with talented cyber professionals in the cybersecurity market. We bring together the best technical leaders to discuss industry passions, challenges, and ideas. I'm joined today by a fantastic panel to talk about the importance of threat modeling and application security. Before we get into the discussion, let's make some introductions. So Matt, would you like to kick us off, please? Thanks for having me here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm the senior director of the Product Security Trust Center. Uh, I like to say my team and I, we help make products more secure. Uh, and today I'm representing the opinion of a longtime veteran of the product security space. Uh, in other words, my opinions are my own. Uh, I started out as a software tester, uh, did that for five, six years, learned a lot about the security space, um, kind of moved into IT security, and then went on to found several product security teams, uh, one of which uh, I'm working on right now. And uh, also, uh, threat modeling near and dear to my heart. I, I love it for its its benefits, its side benefits, its positive uh, things that it can do. Uh, and I was also part of the team that made the medical device threat modeling template that's in the Microsoft tool today. Thanks, Matt. I'm Mark. Yeah. Good day. My name is Mark Haupt. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer at Databank. I've been with Databank for eight and a half years. Uh, Databank is an uh, organization that provides um, data center operations for US, UK, and, and France. We have about 70 data centers. Um, I've been doing uh, cybersecurity predominantly for uh, 30 plus years. Uh, I've, I've been a CISO for um, almost 15 years now of that time frame. So threat modeling is also dear and, and near and dear to my heart. Uh, but I've done it a lot of different ways. Uh, back when I was in the military, I did uh, red team type of exercises and, and modeled out the threats that might exist, both physical as well as logical. I was a, I was a cryptologist in the military, so we had to deal with cyberspace uh, long before cyberspace even existed. And then uh, even and since then, with uh, with commercial environment, I've uh, been doing a lot of threat modeling and in, in forensics and, and different pieces along those lines. So. Glad to be here, and hopefully uh, we can have a great conversation. Absolutely. Cheers, Mark. Jeff, would you like to go next? All right. Uh, Jeff Seaman, um, uh, Senior Application Security Manager at PwC, uh, also um, uh, Assistant Professor of Applied Computer Science at Point Park University, dual roles. Um, so I've been in cybersecurity for about five or six years. A uh, majority of my career has been spent in software development before cybersecurity, maybe um, as it was mentioned here, before cybersecurity existed. You know, we didn't think about the uh, threats of cybersecurity. You just upload a code and you kind of went along uh, with your day. Uh, threat modeling is uh, very important to me. Um, it's a, a very important role that I play today within um, uh, PwC. We're always improving and trying to uh, make things a lot better um, moving forward. It's also important. It's um, working at the university level, um, encouraging the or um, educating the young minds of uh, what's really out there and the potential risks and ways that we can mitigate it within different courses so that we offer to universities. So looking forward to this podcast. Absolutely. Cheers, Jeff. And finally, Chris. So my name is Christopher Gorham. Uh, I work for the Department of Justice, uh, primarily overseeing our application development efforts. I'm also an adjunct professor. So I work very closely with our security team. Uh, obviously, when we deploy applications, there's a lot of uh, check the boxes we have to do with our security team. Uh, as well as policy. Uh, so I'm not much of an expert as these guys are, but I work a lot with the security where I have to learn and understand a lot of the terminology. Uh, and I also have the fortunate uh, opportunity to teach uh, what I know about uh, software development and security to a lot of the students. So that's definitely a terrific uh, opportunity I enjoy doing. 
And I just want to say it's an honor to be on this panel uh, with a lot of these professionals. Uh, I'm going to learn just as much from you guys <laughs> as you can learn from me. So thank you so much, and I uh, look forward to the opportunity to have this discussion. Thank you, Christopher. Okay, great. Let's move on to the topic. So you all have a question on the importance of threat modeling application security. I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. Each of you have the opportunity to then give your take on it and then we'll proceed. So let's start with Matt and your question, please. Sure. I've heard it said that threat modeling has no place in modern agile web development. Why do you think someone might say that? And what would you say to counter it? That's an excellent question. You know, I work in the agile methodology today. Uh, we work in a security environment and, you know, early on it was, um, brought to our attention. How can, uh, how can you do tasks, um, the same type of tasks that a software developer would do, um, in agile and sprints and two week sprints. And, you know, the question was opposed that, oh, it can't be done, but it can be done. And uh, we we're doing it right now. We've been doing it for a couple of years now. I will say it's not a simple thing. It's not, you know, you don't, I like to see you don't get as much completed as software developers just knocking out little tasks, creating this and that work. You know, security is a little bit more involved and it could take multiple sprints or multiple epics or whatever the case is. It is possible. It just has to be, I, from my experience, it has to be well thought out and planned before moving forward, at least in my short experience in the past two years, uh, using, um, we're using a uh, safe agile. Yeah, I would, I would probably respond with uh, two questions. You know, one of my favorite TV shows out there right now is um, Ted Lasso. And one in season one, he said, be curious. So I would start asking them why they think uh, it's not important. And then we would hopefully have a dialogue as to, uh, you know, counter their objections, much as we do when we walk into a sales conversation. What, why don't you want, why don't you think you need this product? Why do you not think you need to buy this product and put it inside of your environment? And then, then we can counter those types of objections. But the reality is, is that probably if people really think about it and, and understand what threat modeling is, um, they'll, they'll accept it. Uh, the, the, probably the reason, especially in agile where they wouldn't accept it is because it might slow down their process. It might, uh, impede their ability to hit their goals and, and move along. And a lot of people inside of the, especially the do the agile process that I'm familiar with are very entrepreneurial type of folks that just want to get out there, get, get the code deployed, get it out there and get a product on the table so that that product is functioning and selling. And so anything that impedes their way uh, becomes a challenge, whether it's threat modeling or whether it's security compliance in general, uh, though all of those things are challenges to someone that just wants to de deploy and get it done. So be curious take a look at exactly what their responses are, meet their objections with data-centered facts, and then work work into the program, work into the process. Yeah, so obviously uh, working at software development, we do a lot in Agile, uh, but the one thing I discovered, I think maybe Jeff or Mark mentioned is it's not, threat model is not uh, a topic that comes up a lot. It only comes up when we're working with the security team. And so the question is, how can we incorporate threat modeling and other security concepts into our agile process. And the other thing is most developers probably won't know what threat modeling is. So start off with the basic question, what is it a threat to when we're protecting information, whether we're building an application or uh, whether we're deploying an application, what do cyber hackers want? They want the information. So we need to model our security 
based off of the Hacker Strategy while balancing the deployment because oftentimes it could be an imbalance uh, when you're trying to focus on deployment only and no one's thinking about security. And so therefore, incorporating the threat modeling concept within the Azure mythology and also making sure that we we understand uh, the core concepts behind that. And therefore, we can deploy an application that's fully secure. So uh, let me kind of give the background of where I come from from that question. I, I've seen that kind of a misperception. I also heard about it at a, uh, somebody mentioned at a security conference. And from my experience, I think it often arrives from that misperception that threat modeling is only a waterfall thing. Now, many of the mechanisms that we use to threat model today are very waterfall centric and they need to be adapted to, to fit. Uh, but I, I see that misperception kind of leads them to thinking, oh, well, we, we can't do it the waterfall way because we're agile. No, you can do it the right way. You just have to be careful about it. And and when you think about the thing uh, about uh, uh, getting code out the door, getting it you know, deployed quickly. Okay, great. Well, that just means we need to incorporate that threat modding cycle into the process in a way that gives the feedback on just the pieces that are pertinent. And so some of those things like like asking them, what is it you're trying to protect? What is it, you know, the threats to that one really important piece, I think can help overcome that. Yeah, uh, Matt, I just want to follow up with a question. Why do you think it's so much, I wouldn't say resistance, but why is it that with the Agile, there's so much focus on delivery and not incorporating the threat modeling concepts. From my experience, I think it often it's just it's not been integrated yet. Or the team that just hasn't thought about how do you take a waterfall process, uh, like often, you know, secure development type processes and get them into a, a sprint agile environment where it's go, go, go. So thanks everyone for that. Let's move on to your question, please, Mark. Absolutely. Thanks for the opportunity. So what I want to ask is is kind of thinking about outside of the box a little bit. We've got a lot of new technologies that are coming out there or relatively new technologies. So we've got uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence that has just exploded in the past six months to a year, even though it's been around for quite a while, just it, it exploded. Uh, we've got low code, no code type of coding environments where we're really trying to, to, to push people towards those types of environments where they can do it themselves. And then we've got the lovely chat GPT that's coming out and has even been challenged um, in courts and, and other types of situations from a privacy perspective. Um, so are these tra these non-traditional methods um, of, of development, uh, do they pose a risk to uh, the traditional methods of looking at vulnerabilities or threat modeling um, in in you know using web application scanners and and other types of uh, situations like that and are we moving towards a, a a situation where we really just need to rely solely upon the human doing the penetration testing efforts in, in that gray hat type of environment where the the tools that we relied on previously are just not going to work for us anymore because the systems are smarter than the tools oh chat gpt i can go on for hours on this one but uh we use a lot of low code uh, applications, local, no core applications, which I think in some ways is not as accurate as they promote. Uh, but the, the, the way I see it is this, these tools are there to help enhance our capabilities to where we become efficient in one area of development where we could focus on becoming more efficient in another area when it comes to security. Uh, and I think that's important. Uh, the problem we run into is not fully understanding what exactly is low code, no code. Because I, I, 
there's always customization you need into these applications. So for example, we have low-code applications of Salesforce, but what kind of security is, is built in that will protect our information uh, from outside intruders or protect information from inside threats? Uh, so there's a lot that goes into building up your security model. You have to start there. Of course, zero trust comes to be a factor here. But when we talk about chat GPT, uh, I would assume we're talking about the tenth iteration in 2030 of ChatGPT, where it's a little bit more refined. Because you have to, we have to focus more on what is a proven uh, type of security automation tool that we can leverage to better secure our application. I just don't think we're there yet with ChatGPT. I think it's an awesome tool for right now, but I think we have a ways to go. We have to be able to figure out. Uh, our vulnerabilities, which we can't automate. So automation tools are useful to help us to become more efficient in one area so we can dedicate resources in the other area that had been ignored over the past uh, few years. The uh, the AI space is kind of interesting because it's having those impacts. And, and I, th- I heard it referenced to art being made with AI as a way to be more efficient. And, and Chris mentioned it as well. And I think that's a key thing to be learned there is that Tools like ChatGPT may make us more efficient at testing. What I don't think it changes, though, is the need to do all of that legwork up front to make sure we've got good design. If you look at the, you know, you could be more and more and more efficient as a tester or as a test team, finding really cool problems late in the game, but you're still finding them late in the game. We still need to remember that even the best test tool in the world will still let you implement a bad design. It's very interesting that we bring up chat GPT. I just did a uh, uh, discussion with uh, local faculty members uh, within my uh, group um, a couple of weeks ago talking about chat GPT. And one of the questions that came up that arise was what about the security issues with it? What about compliance issues? And in, in my in my defense, my answer was like, you know, like when the internet came out in early 1990s, it was so new. Everyone was like, wow, this is great. This is awesome, and you know there was there was a lot of people on the fence with it, but behind the scenes, like you know, some of the gentlemen mentioned here today, I believe Matt mentioned about cybersecurity before we even knew about cybersecurity, um, was an issue. Um, some of the challenges then, I'm sure, was um, thought about like what are the vulnerabilities, what are the capabilities of this thing called the internet, and kind of going back to where we're at today with ChatGPT, you know, in the, in our environment where, where I work at, and I'm sure that everyone else here on this call. We're using different tools, vulnerability tools, the SAS scanning, DAS scanning, et cetera, um, traditional stuff that, you know, we're, we're accustomed to using. And this really kind of throws a loop, uh, kind of throws a, a curveball at us because now we have this new system or artificial intelligence that is going to be able to kind of do thinking on its own without us, the human, um, communicating with it. So it rises so many concerns to me. Um, right now, as um, Chris had mentioned, it is pretty cool. But um, as it um, as it modernizes, and, and you know, it's in what 4.0 right now. As it increases in other versions, I'm sure it could be a threat. So I think it's important that you know government is involved, but at the same time, it's um, it's it's going to be an interesting ride. And, and there's so many in in uh, as uh, Chris as um Matt had Matt had mentioned in regards to you don't want to be the last person. To the scene, there's a lot of things. Um, I think threat modeling is plays a key role in identifying what potential risks are out there. So, yeah, I, w- I guess I want to follow that up because I think both um, both Chris and and Jeff, you, you've done a 
you, you guys have uh, both brought up the concerns with, um, you know, with, with chat GPT uh, beyond uh, just the general threat modeling piece. We're, how much of a threat do you see uh, that AI and chat G GPT being when, um, you know, the, the human will rely upon that as this source of truth? Meaning, you know, we put, we, we put a request for code in there, GPT fires back, here's your code. And then a security professional looks at it and goes, uh, no, there's a, there's a vulnerability in there. And the application team says it can't have a vulnerability. It's from chat GPT or it's, it's generated by AI. You know, how do, how do we deal with threat modeling with that? And how do we defend against that? Uh, is this the human override chat GPT or is chat GPT override the human in that threat modeling process? So I think we have to pretty much go right into uh, the algorithm of how chat GPT is delivering its results. And, it's, and you know, when we ask a question about, uh, there are college students who are asking chat GPT to write their own reports. Well, how is that being done? How's that algorithm works? And you're seeing some of the algorithm issues that may occur because ChatGPT has some uh, some bugs associated with it. And so we have to start exploring those errors. And then how do you regulate that? You know, how do you regulate when you build out an algorithm? Uh, so AWS and Microsoft Azure has uh, what you call a machine learning studio where you can go out and develop algorithms and build out your own ChatGPT. But now if ChatGPT is going to be mainstream, we got to figure out how to regulate that information. So when it comes back, it's nothing that will be harmful uh, to society. It has to be some balance in there. So I don't want to say control, but it has to be some balance. Uh, we as a freedom also operates within the walls of society. I, I have to wonder, and I'm working on an article about this right now. What is the threat model of the algorithm itself, right? You've got this this thing you're trying to make. You're trying to get the algorithm trained to do statistical inferences at scale that are that seem reasonable. But what about people trying to manipulate that very algorithm itself? There's a lot of questions as to how that's going to happen, how that's going to be in uh, perceived by humans who are looking at it when they think that nobody ever bothered to influence that. Right? You have to remember that any sort of machine learning is going to have bias in its data coming in, and therefore it's going to have bias in its data coming out. Cheers, everyone, for your input there. Our penultimate question comes from Jeff. So, Jeff, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, so, as we're talking about threat um, modeling, uh, so my question is, you know, the goal of threat modeling um, is obviously to minimize risks and data breaches and so forth and unauthorized access and other cyber security threats. Um, so, you know, talking to you guys like Matt, um, that everyone here on this panel seems to have a, a wealth of knowledge in cybersecurity, uh, much more than myself, where a lot of mine started in software development and kind of moved over here. So um, some of the traditional steps that um, I'm accustomed to is, as I mentioned, you know, identifying, you know, problem solving, identifying step assets that you have in place. How are you going to protect them? What are some of the steps that you guys would take in order to um, uh, minimize potential threats? So, you know, kind of going back to Matt's question, he, he or Matt's answer earlier, he mentioned in regards to you know you want to get to it before you're you're the last one there. You want to protect that. Uh, what what are um you know what are some of the steps that people would take, and would the steps be different based off the type of business that you're involved with? Like uh, you know we have banks, a banking industry versus um, a financial industry versus um, a marketing company. Um, so what would be the uh, approaches that people would take? 
Okay, great. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question, and you're you're absolutely dead on. Um, you have to evaluate the industry that you're in and the, what what you need to do. So, for example, if you're you even have to evaluate the region or even the state in the United States that you're in. So, for example, region evaluation. You're in Europe or you have operations in Europe. You have to evaluate GDPR and the privacy and compliance issues that are required there. If you're in the state of California or you do business with uh, California folks where you are com- you have to be compliant with the California Consumer Privacy Act or or similar types of things. Uh, so you do have to evaluate external interference or external regulation um, inside of, of, of how you do threat modeling. That, you know, kind of looking at it as a uh, kind of a bullseye, you just kind of work your way in from there. So once you've gone beyond the regulation of the location and also the um, other aspects of where you're at, then you start having, you know, you start have to look at at what the appetite for risk is in inside of your organization, and exactly what kind of data uh, that you have. Um, you know, for example, if you're in a healthcare industry, you've got 18 regulated uh, types of data that are directed by HIPAA, high tech, that says this is what you have to do with them. But if you're here in an, another industry, like like three of us here. Are, or in an academic industry, or or, or, or adjunct professors, we could take that same 18 categories of data that's required in HIPAA, and we can de uh, de identify that and use that in research projects. So we could we can transport that over. So you have to evaluate your risk from that perspective, and then when you finally get down to threat modeling on the on the code or on the application itself, then you really have to take into account who the users are on the other end of it. Is it all internal? Is it is it external? Do they access it through a VPN? Um, you know, all the technology pieces that come into play to protect the environment. So it, it kind of goes to the old adage of, uh, you know, uh, of just looking at it as concentric circles coming in. And then that core, that data core is, is what you need to protect. And you have to put multi-layer defense around each piece, each piece of that. I'll let some of the other guys talk as well. Okay, so I'm gonna use an example, uh, which I was a victim of a, a breach. Uh, Sony breach, I think about 10 years ago, because I played PlayStation, uh, and I got word that my information was hacked. So I started caring more about uh, threat modeling and a little bit, some of the other security. <laughs> uh, you know, how did we, you know, how did this happen? You know, being a victim, you're asking yourself, how did this happen? And and how can they protect my information? You know, I got my credit card, I got all my other things there. And, you know, you look at how Sony responded, it's multi-factor authentication. Uh, fast forward a few years later, you had Target. Uh, they had 40 million customers that they breached. Uh, and then we start moving to chip cards because now if you slide your card, they can, that in between, uh, uh, they can hack your information from the time that they perform the transaction so it gets to the receiving end of it. So you have to, how to be proactive, you have to study the techniques uh, of your enemy, you know, you have to be able to understand how they're going about uh, getting, you know, their information. You have to study, and then you got to figure out how to get ahead of the game, which is the hardest part there. So, when it comes to application security, uh, you start with okay, let's first secure it. So, when we are building enterprise application, first thing we want to do is I want to see if anyone can be able to get in and access any part of this application. Let's start there. We don't trust anyone. And I tell my students when I'm teaching anything regarding network security, uh, I trust you, but I don't trust you. <laughs> I said, because our greatest strength is our greatest greatest weakness, people. You know, and, uh, and we learn that. Uh, obviously, we see with Edward Snowden, 
what happened a few years ago with the NSA. Uh, so we trusted him to protect information. He ended up taking the information. So we have to learn from that. And guess what? It, things keep happening. So we have to figure out a way to understand uh, the threat to us. And then we'll be able to be proactive in protecting the information. I, I did a presentation on on this kind of core concept uh, a number of years ago about at RSA, evaluating the secure development maturity of uh, any arbitrary dev team in about an hour. And so, you know, what would I do to protect my business? And it kind of builds on what Chris was just discussing there. As a, as a customer of some vendor, I actually want to know what are they doing to build a secure product, especially the product, be it a software package or a service, a software as a service kind of entity uh, that I'm going to use. What are they doing to make sure they're not leaving security problems in there? And, and the reason why I would recommend taking that approach is because it's going to actually drive the industry, whatever industry it is that you're buying from, in that right direction, right? People are saying, hey, our customers are asking, how do we make stuff secure? Okay, great. That's going to put a pressure on the business to see that it's actually important to the customer base, so they need to change their behaviors. And also, it, it establishes that expectation uh, that you know security is important to you as a customer, and therefore, they need to do so. I will say that all the advice that you guys provided was very good advice. Um, and you're right. Um, as you mentioned, as you're educate, as you mentioned, you're educating students, you're, you're trying to teach them from the ground up the right ways of doing things. And, and, and <laughs> Chris, you mentioned, uh, I think it was, you mentioned about, you know, people are the, the worst, um, problem, uh, worst person. And so I had, you know, I spent about 10 years working in the banking industry, maybe four or five of it was in enterprise fraud. And that tend to be, um, the problem that we found a lot was, uh, most of the culprit, um, hacking issues that happened, uh, was internal. And so at, at the end of the day, we didn't have a good, uh, model in place. If, um, internally we were being, uh, uh, losing money from internal, um, hackers or internal individuals working for the company. And I believe, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's a large percentage that, you know, you're. Um, threats are typically internal versus external, uh, because they, you know, they have, you know, they basically have the, uh, um, I won't say expertise, but, um, they have the, uh, abilities, um, more, uh, closer to the product and uh, people, um, externally facing. So thank you everyone. It's great. Yeah, you're absolutely right on those statistics about the internal inter internal threats. And uh, you know, depending on who you look at for stats-wise, we're looking at anywhere from 65 to 70, even maybe 75% of all the attacks that occur out there that are successful are internal attacks. Now, the question then comes to dr drilling that down very quickly of what de what's defining that. Well, you know, during COVID and, and here the past couple of years with the work from home revolution, we, we've seen that cats and dogs uh, are sometimes the culprit of that. They land on the keyboards uh, and they, they walk across the keyboards because here's the here's the issue that people leave their their desktop open while they go out to the kitchen to grab something to eat while they go to the restroom for a bio break. They think that they're in their home. Nobody's going to hit it, attack it. So they leave their stuff open. The cat walks across the, the keyboard and enters a whole bunch of the data into the application where the last um, the last cursor was at, and all of a sudden that modified the data inside of a, a database behind the scenes. Now that's qualified as an attack, um, although it's obviously not nefarious. It's qualified as a, as an attack that re would require a response from a disaster recovery, re you know, rebuild of the database type of thing in order to correct that. 
So we we have seen that 65, 70% has been historically in my career, insider threat issues. Obviously, it used to be those deals where you know people would get disgruntled at their employer uh, or disgruntled at their their coworkers and do something to to cause problems. But now it's actually even more so with a with a work from home res- revolution. So so thanks everyone. Our final question on today's episode comes from Chris. So Chris, if you'd like to tell the listeners and the palace your question, please. Yeah. So this is more of a process driven question. It would be what are some of the most efficient ways that businesses can establish core security requirements when developing enterprise applications? Uh, you know, incorporate that process when you're developing the application. I think it's great that people are actually worried about security and enterprise apps because for the longest time it was like, ah, it's an enterprise app. We don't have to care about that one. Right? <laughs> so that part's improving. That's great. So how do we incorporate that in efficient fashion? Well, um, uh, I, I, I worry that checklists sometimes shut off the thought process, but I would actually say checklists, but an additional aspect of it, context aware, context sensitive checklists. So not only is it a, hey, you're using this tax, so you got to think about this, but it knows enough about, say, the data flow, and maybe you could actually build that for a threat model, right? Uh, so it knows, hey, you've got this thing, so you need to be concerned about all these settings, all these uh, requirements associated with this database or with that web app service, uh, so that you get all of that uh, consistently added, and then the humans can make sure that those parts get implemented. On mute. So yeah, th- this is a great question, uh, Chris, and I kind of I agree with... Um... Uh, Matt on that um, you know exciting that people are interested in security now um, which is that uh, you know once upon a time it wasn't um, something that people were entertaining everybody wants to do it at least from an education standpoint but um, going back to your question uh, you know coming up with some type of uh, utilizing a coding standard um, or some type of guidelines like the WASP or following some methodology um, you know being able to provide training awareness. I think that is key. Uh, a lot of people are, you know, not really, um, I won't say that they're not aware of, um, the, the vulnerabilities or, or, or the possibilities, but sometimes, uh, I have seen in my, um, with students and I see it with the, the environment that I work at currently and, and previously, um, you know, developers are, um, a little green in that area, you know, like, Hey, I've been doing this for six years or 10 years. It, it's fine. It's, it's not going to be a problem, but, you know, following some type of, uh, regulatory, regulatory patching, I, I've seen, uh, issues like that happen at work and previous places and getting used to, uh, you know, providing that security testing, uh, with your applications, you know, as someone mentioned earlier, you know, people just want to push that code out, uh, get it in production, not worry about the, uh, um, the, uh, situations that could happen because, Hey, you know what we got out in production, we're good, but then boom, here comes DDoS time or, or, or this or that. So, you know, you want to be prepared for that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, a couple of things here, what, what Matt and, and Jeff were saying is, uh, is absolutely correct. Um, you know, but what we need to do with, with these types of situations is just make sure that we slow down and we, we decide as an organization, one of the things I do inside of my organization is decide in advance what our requirements are going to be. And typically what I like to do is I like to take those requirements off the shelf from like NIST or somewhere else or OWASP, things along those lines, because as a CISO, it, it coming in sometimes, you know, people are going to be, you know, kind of standoffish anyway, because, oh no, here comes the CISO. He's going to tell us all these things we have to do. 
But if I come in with a pre a predefined document that people are familiar with, that we've made them familiar with, with you know throughout our careers, um, and I come in with industry standards and say, look, I'm not inventing something new here. This is what other people are doing as well. We'll pull that off the shelf and we'll say, here you go. Now let's sit down together. Let's go through these requirements and and decide what's applicable to our environment, and then we work off of that as a baseline. I love what Matt was saying about checklists. Um, as much as a security professional hates checklists because that's what the that, that's what we're you know the auditors are accused of doing all the time, there is a reality that checklists are good. And one of my hobbies is aviation. Pilots have knee boards and they have checklists on their knee on their knee boards for everything they do. And there's a reason for that. So they don't crash. Okay. And that's really kind of the mindset that we need to have here is if you skip one thing, that could lead to an incident or a breach. If the pilot skips one thing, it could end up with the nose in the ground or coming into land without landing gear down. Okay. So the checklists are there and they're important. But as Matt said, they also need to be relevant to the environment in which you're in. And I think that they, to add to that, they need to be a an agreed upon standard prior to going in and prior to the point uh, of where it becomes a contentious issue. Everybody knows from the day one, this is what we need to do. Oh, uh, great points, Mark. And I think, you know, what you're hitting on is, is following the process. Don't skip a step. Uh, I have a nephew that went to a school. He went for software engineering and he took a course, computer programming and security. I was like, hmm. Uh, last time I took a programming class, uh, it was uh, QBasic. So, hey, things have changed. Um, <laughs> incorporating security. And I was curious to see, well, what kind of security concepts are you learning if you're taking programming for the first time? I'm curious because you're, you're learning two things at once. So I had some concern. I think it's the right idea, right approach, but you're learning two areas of IT, which is critical. And it, it may be the, the necessary uh, requirement for a lot of when it comes to education, I know that's a whole nother discussion, but uh, I'm wondering uh, just to kind of get you guys thoughts on that. You know, do you think that would help as far as future iterations of threat modeling? Should we incorporate that? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump on that one. And, you know, we have been begging for years inside of our corporations, inside of our enterprises, inside of the federal government for, uh, for people to consider security as part of the SDLC early on in the SDLC, SDLC at the very early requirements gathering stage of the SDLC. So the fact that an education entity is building in a security course, I applaud them 100%. It may not get us to everywhere we need to be, but here's the thing with security is awareness is what makes it long-term. Okay. We don't want this. We don't want your, I think you said it was their nephew. We don't want your nephew um, learning about security when he or you know goes into the first um, job that they do, we want them knowing about it before they go into the job. At least the concept, the thought process that security has to be there. So when I interview people, when I talk to people about security in general, I tell them about the sixth sense that I have about security. You know, I was interviewing a guy one time, and I, I we were in a cafeteria. And I said, okay, I want you to look around. I want you to tell me what the security threats are around here. I was looking around. I was like, I'm in a cafeteria inside a, a building that has proximity cards. It's it's the office building, an enterprise office building. Because I really don't see a lot of threats around here. And I said, well, what about that trash can over there where somebody could have dropped in a box? And you and I 
are in danger of whatever happens when that box explodes. Oh yeah, I never thought about that. So it's it's that sixth sense that you have. Now, I don't want to go to the point of saying paranoia. I'm saying build in the sixth sense that makes you aware that security needs to be a part of coding, needs a part of development. And then if for the long term, we can teach them all the other things that need to happen if they've got that built in. Um, it's interesting, the discussion of education. I, I think that is a big uh, gap that we could all benefit from across the entire tech industry in in helping establish that sixth sense, as Mark was talking about. And, and I've seen courses. There's Heck, there's degree programs all about information security. They often focus more on information security operations. We need more that talk about the secure development aspect, the secure design aspect, because that's the stuff that, that's going to, you know, uh, spark that curiosity, maybe put someone on that path to paranoia, but maybe not there yet, because we don't necessarily have everybody go that far, but get them thinking about those kinds of issues uh, from early on. So we have less of a problem downstream. So we have less of a situation where people are taking uh, a poor design or a poor implementation and using it in new and creative ways that cause problems when they get vulnerables, uh, vulnerabilities. Hey, um, I was just going to add to what Matt mentioned. I agree with uh, him wholeheartedly. Um, you know, working in the education space, um, some of the classes or courses that are put together, you know, the software development, you're learning the basics of software development. I think there should be a, um, something added towards security in there to heighten, um, software developers because, you know, they're learning how to code for the first time, or maybe they've been coding for the past 10 or 15 years, whatever the case is, you know, they've, you know, people learn earlier and earlier these days, but having that understanding of, Hey, you know what? Let's make sure that your code um, is set up properly. Let's make sure that you're, you know, um, you're preventing, uh, you're not enabling yourself for a SQL injection or SQL attack, for example. Um, you're not doing this or that. So you might have some type of vulnerabilities. Learning, I think, learning early on, knowing that hey, I have to code in a different uh, setup, is very important to the young minds out there who will be taking over the cybersecurity space in the next 10, 20, 30 years so forth thanks jeff so before we end the podcast today i'd like to say a big thanks to all our guests for sharing their thoughts in today's conversation once again our guests on today's podcast have been matt the senior director of application security at activision blizzard mark who's the CISO at databank jeff the senior application security manager lead at pwc and finally chris who's the source code application development manager at the u.s department of justice and finally, if you're hiring for new technical roles or looking for a new technical role, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to feature on a future episode, feel free to drop me a message. I'm James Price, and you can find me on LinkedIn or my email at james.price at evolutionjobs.us or visit us at evolutionjobs.com. Thanks again to all our guests, and thank you for listening. We hope you can join us next time.